Good evening, everyone. Happy New Year. I dressed up a little bit for you. <laughs> so what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And I know some of you have asked this day after day. <laughs> Maybe when you got here, you had some idea about what you were doing. And now it's like... <sighs> so tonight, I want to talk about this. What are we doing here? And I'll offer many different frames about this. But the first one I want to name is we are coming into contact with the truth. We're becoming intimate with the truth. We are becoming more true ourselves. And so you could say that actually, as we come into intimacy with truth, as we become true, we become more genuine. What if this was a path of just discovering what is most truly genuine or authentic? One of my teachers calls this the live wire of authenticity. So the Buddha named this, and it's probably my favorite sutta, it's the Sutta Gosinga. And so he gathers his closest disciples with him. Mahakasapa is there, and Mahamogalana is there, and Sariputta, of course, and Kevata, and Rahula, and Ananda. He says, Friend Ananda, the Gosinga solitary wood is delightful. The night is moonlit. You can imagine maybe there's a full moon. The solitaries are all in blossom, and heavenly scents seem to be floating in the air. So you can imagine this gathering in the full moonlight, these blossoming trees, this beautiful odors wafting through, and this gathering of noble ones, the Buddha and his closest disciples, in the moonlight. And he says, friend Ananda, what kind of yogi, what kind of yogi here could illuminate the Gosinga solitary wood? Sometimes I think about that image here. It's almost a full moon, just past. And we're all here gathered in this beautiful illuminated hall. And what has the Buddha said to us? What could illuminate? What kind of yogi could illuminate the Gosinga solitary grove, this grove at Spirit Rock? And then he goes through the Buddha and he names, he says, Mahakasapa, it's this kind of yogi that pays very close attention, that can see deeply into detail. Mahakasapa was really good at detail. And he says to Rivata, he says, it's this kind of yogi, the one who's really good at discourse and talking to people. It's this kind of yogi that can light the solitary grove. And Ananda has a big old heart. It's the big-hearted yogis that illuminate the grove. And it's the ones who can see with the divine eye. He names all of these unique characteristics to his disciples they didn't all have perfect concentration. Sariputta was known for his concentration. But Mogalana was known for his psychic abilities. So we all have this genuine flavor to us. Each of our awakening, each of our personalities, as they awaken, are going to be different. They're unique to you. And what if this practice wasn't so much about doing it right and figuring out the rules and having the perfect experience, but becoming more and more true to who you really are. 
Can we even allow ourselves to consider that? And on this team, we played around some with this. If you were here last year, Hakim gave us all Marvel characters. So Hakim, of course, is Black Panther. And Don and I were the two versions of Captain Marvel. Eugene is Professor X, of course. <laughs> and Tuary Storm. You see this, right, with different personalities. The Parmies, we've got virtue, or Eugene would like to know, or like you to know, it's virility, actually, <laughs> that we've got. We've got energy, we've got truth, got patience, equanimity. There's joy in naming all of the facets of awakening. And we're just reflecting this back to you. We've got 94 different Marvel characters in the room. Though the truth, there's many truths, maybe. The truth or the Dhammas, there's so many. There's external truths. The truth that's represented in our friends on the path, our teachers, our role models, our benefactors, our examples, their truth, that we learn the wise words of another that helps us along the way. Those, those are true. And we have the truth of the text, the scriptures, that we heard chanted so beautifully last night. We'll do some more chanting later. The truth of the suttas, of the words of the Buddha, and all the commentaries, there's truth there. There's truth in the phenomena of the world. Have you seen this, how the trees are teaching you? And the birds, hummingbirds, the rain is always teaching us Dhamma. There's a truth there. Everything, everything is there, awaiting and beckoning us, inviting us to be awake. Truth of the world. There's the truth of you, your inner truth, your inner Dhamma. Your inner Dhamma. So truth is one word for Dhamma. And I want to talk some about Dhamma the beauty of the Dhamma, what's unfolding for us here in this liminal space of the turning of the year. It's happening moment by moment. It's also just imaginary, this turning of the year. But the truth of this moment that's changing, the beauty of this moment, the Dhamma of this moment, right now, here, right here, right here, So there's this chant that's often chanted every day in monasteries. Most monastics are encouraged to reflect frequently upon the, the qualities of the triple gem, the three jewels, the refuges that we spoke about in the beginning. And this chant is very ancient, beautiful ancient chant, naming the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. We see these repeatedly throughout the suttas, again and again, these phrases. The blessed one, he's holy, purified, he discovered this truth. One who's joyful, truly well. We chant these qualities of the Buddha, we chant the qualities of the Dhamma. Buddha Bhagavati Sawakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanaiko Pachatam Veritabo Vinyuhiti Supatipano goes on. These qualities of the Dhamma. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One. It's beautifully taught. So it said the Buddha shared 84,000 dharmas. 
And when he spoke, when he gave his discourses, it said that he could see exactly what each person needed to hear. He could see right into your heart. Can you imagine how great that would be? <laughs> you showed up and this person could see you and was like, this is your Dhamma. And you're like, Phew. You didn't have to strive for all the way sitting and walking and all this that we're having to do. This person is just like, there you go. And you could see like all the lights going off. Oh, there's that. That one goes. And there's that one. This one goes. (laughs) There's 94 Dharma talks that each of you needs in this room. Very unique talk each of you needs. And yet you're just getting this one. (laughs) But how beautiful, how beautiful that is, that he could see exactly what you needed. And maybe, just maybe you've had that experience. Sometimes I used to have this very young coming to the path. I would listen to a talk or I'd read a book and it was like, how did she know? That was exactly what I needed to hear. The Dhamma, this is the quality of the Dhamma. It's well taught beautifully articulated. And there's so many different dhammas. You know, you hear them through our different voices. You hear about joy. And you hear about suffering. You hear about courage and what it takes to walk this path. There's so many different ways to walk on this path, to discover your truth. I was telling one group today, it's so early. We're like in maybe the second generation of translating these Pali suttas. If you compare that to the history of like biblical studies, I mean, how many generations of translations have we had of the Bible? But with all these suttas, there's so many, vast, vast. And we, I can count on my hands maybe the translators who have like translated these into English. That's just English. What about translating into all these other languages? We're so new. It's fresh, but we're also just figuring out what this Dhamma is, actually. What did the Buddha really mean? I was telling Dawn, like, hearing her chant in her voice, her Dhamma, such a gift. That voice, Pali, through this voice, through each of your voices, We're translating, we're translating. And can we stay open to not really knowing? I mean, these suttas, they were written down 500 years after the Buddha died. He died, right? It was all oral. Oral tradition through his life and then all his disciples, just oral. How can we know what he said? And yet, there is something happening here. All these generations later, we feel the turning of the Dhamma still happening in us. What is that? What is going on? How is that true? I mean, think about truth. What is truth? Have you felt something and felt a resonate, resonate in you? I had one retreat where I was really concentrated and I was learning all of the Abhidhamma, these different mind states. I was memorizing the Chittasikas and Pali in English. There's all these lists, 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 lists. But it was like, he is describing my mind. Abhidhamma is even later than the suttas. Somebody out there. It was like writing a map of my mind. How is that? Well expounded by the Blessed One. I mean, even we get very simple with the Four Noble Truths. And the first truth the Buddha says, is separation from what we love, association with what we don't love, birth, aging, illness, and death. This is dukkha. This is stress. This is unreliability. Does that ring true for anybody? It just, to me, it's like, yep, we kind of summed it up right there. We get what we don't want. We don't get what we want. Our bodies are aging. From the moment we're born, we're kind of in this like doom cycle. It's only getting worse (laughs) from here. 
And then what do we have to wait for? I mean, if we're lucky, we get old. If we're lucky, we experience an aging body. And I know, I know so many of you are in here just really sitting with pain. Courage. It takes a lot of courage to be a human being. And so Buddha says the first noble truth is to be understood. We have to understand it. It's not wrong that your body is in pain. It's not wrong that your heart is breaking. We have to stand under this dukkha to understand it. And I know I've heard a lot of you talk, you know, when we're with difficulty, there's so much doubt that can come. The sense of, I couldn't stay with it. I had to move posture. Or, gosh, my mind is just so flighty. It's so unwieldy. I can't wrangle it. It's not working. Yeah, that's true. We have to be with that. Moving posture is being with your dukkha. Staying here. Breath by breath, moment by moment, chair, sitting, lying down, not sleeping, right? Doubting, doubting. That's being with your dukkha. You're doing it. So these stories we hear about how it grows resiliency to be with your difficulty. That's what you're doing. <laughs> you're still here. It's so humbling. It's so humbling, this path. So just to share some of my story, I was born in a body that didn't digest very well. And everything that my mother ate caused intense distress. So I wasn't sleeping, screaming, crying. She tried everything. That was like way back in the days before we had anything gluten-free. So she's like trying to eat corn pasta and like weird goat stuff, goat milk, all of these hippie foods. Nothing worked. Nothing worked. Kept getting worse. I didn't sleep. She took me to Western medicine doctors. They gave her antibiotics. I got antibiotics in her breast milk. Much worse, much worse. And this went on for years. I remember her showing me once these charts that she kept to bring to the doctor to show how I wasn't sleeping and a red dot was for a sleepless night, and a blue dot was for a night that I got some sleep, and it's like waves of red. Just an infant body in such distress. And she's told me stories about her distress, her sense of helplessness, right, as a new mother. She had to send me out with my dad, all wrapped in the snuggly for a long walk so she could scream and throw plates on the patio pound the bed with her tennis racket. And then she kept trying, she kept trying. She went to naturopaths and homeopaths and all these alternative medicine doctors. Eventually, she found a constitutional that by the time I was in first grade, I was pretty okay. I could go to school. I still remember telling everybody, like, well, I can't eat sugar and I can't eat gluten. I can't eat dairy. can't do nightshades. I can't do shellfish. I remember as a little kid at lunchtime. <laughs> I'm like eating my carrot sticks. <laughs> but I was, I was pretty normal growing up. Still, you know, some digestive distress, a lot of horrible gas sometimes, not good for social <laughs> engagements. But generally, generally pretty resilient. And what do you know? I'm doing these years of deep retreat. Some of you know I did a three-and-a-half-year retreat in the Tibetan tradition, just came out in June, a couple years ago, right in the middle of this retreat, all this trauma, this sense of panic and fear and terror comes up in the middle of the night with apparently no story attached, just like crazy existential panic. And now I'm learning more and more. I mean, lots and lots of panic now in the past few years. It's like I have an infant in crisis in my body. It often happens at night, dark, 
not a lot of people around, what to do, what to do with that dukkha. And I feel like my mom did. I feel like, I don't know what to do with you. This racing heart and these waves of fear, my body's trembling, my breath is weird, everything's weird. I feel nauseous. What do I do? A sense of helplessness and a sense of a lot of sometimes this narrative, like what you've been practicing for 23 years and this is happening now? And so we've been talking some in the groups about naming that how we have ancestral trauma in our bodies. We're living with intergenerational trauma. We're living the history. Every moment has a legacy. It's in our bones. This is true. When we come to sit on the cushion, we can't bypass any of that. Right? It's in us. And so it takes a lot of courage a lot of resourcing with joy to be able to go into those dark nights that feel very alone and to not quite know what is happening. Where's our ground? Can't control the body, can't control the mind. Where's our refuge? How do we work with this kind of dukkha? I've spoken with many of you about this. I don't really have an answer. I'm still working with panic in the middle of the night. Those of you who are not sleeping, you can think of me not sleeping. But I will share this particular koan from the Zen tradition that has been my refuge just in the last couple of weeks. Yunyan asked Dao Wu, how does the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin use her many hands and eyes? So you might know, you might see these pictures of Kuan Yin who has a thousand hands and a thousand eyes. All these eyes on the palms of her hands. How does she use those many hands and eyes? Dao Wu answered, it's like someone reaching for her pillow in the middle of the night. Just that image for me. There's a lot of reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. A pillow to put against my chest, a pillow to put against my back, a pillow to wrap my arms around and feel some kind of connection with my body. There's so much compassion just in that image of reaching. Reaching in the dark, we don't quite know. And yet we're reaching for something soft something to put our head on in the middle of the night. Yunyun said, I understand. It's like reaching for a pillow in the dark, and Yunyun says, I understand. Dawu asked, how do you understand it? Yunyun said, all over the body are hands and eyes. Dawu said, that's very well expressed, but it's only eight-tenths of the answer. <laughs> Yunyun said, well, how would you say it? Dawu said, throughout the body are hands and eyes. So, Oh, say it again. Okay. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's so beautiful. So Yunyan asked Dawu, how does the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin use those many hands and eyes? Dawu answered, it's like someone in the middle of the night reaching behind her head for the pillow. Yunyan said, I understand. Dawu asked, how do you understand it? Yunyan said, all over the body are hands and eyes. Dawu said, that's very well expressed, but it's only eight-tenths of the answer. Yunyun said, how would you say it, elder brother? Dawu said, 
throughout the body, our hands and eyes. Can you feel that? For me, so this is what I'm doing in the middle of the night, really honestly, you guys. I'm just, I'm feeling this racing heart. I'm feeling all this strange, unpleasant experience all throughout my body. And I'm imagining Kuan Yin with her thousand hands and thousand eyes just touching this shaking heart. And she has a thousand of them. So how would that feel with whatever you're carrying? Your sorrow, your fear, your heartbreak for the world, your physical pain. How would it be to have all throughout the body, wherever it hurts, a thousand hands and eyes? Just holding something much bigger than you that can hold you. That can hold you. The Dhamma, Dhamma is well taught. The Dhamma is Sanditiko, it's here and now, it's always present. You feel that in the many hands and eyes. The Dhamma is here. It's right here. It's nowhere else. Can you feel that presence? Truth is always here. There's a deep authenticity that's here. That's not what we think it is. Not even a person here. But there is something. There's a quivering of the heart. There's an attunement. And there's a deep sensitivity that is compassion that already is compassion, right here, all throughout the body, our hands and eyes. So we feel this, we feel this inconstancy as we're speaking, 2023 is passing, right? What is even here and now? We can't hold on to it. And you see this, I've seen it's so funny how the machinations happen on retreat, right? We have a hard time, and then we have an easy time, and then we're in shame, and then we're in joy, and we're all over, right? It's changing, changing. And I was talking to one of you today, is there a knowing that can know all of that and is steady and is still and is quiet? This knowing, the presencing of the trees, the presencing of a very wide, very steady heart-mind that's simply knowing. It's not, it's unaffected. It's not impact. doesn't matter what you're feeling. doesn't matter what you're knowing. Mechi Kao is this wonderful Tibetan uh, bodhisattva. She describes the nature of this awareness. She says it very well. She says, no matter how much I'm exposed to the senses, I'm unable to detect even an instant when they have power over my heart. They arise, they cease, they're forever changing. These are all the emotions, all of the thoughts, all the stories that are here. She says, but the presence that knows them never changes for even an instant. It's forever unborn and undying. This is the end of all suffering. The unborn, there it is again. Can you tap into that knowing that is you? You don't have to get it. You don't have to do it right. Already here, it's been knowing all of your doubt this whole time. Can you feel how it's unaffected? It's here. It's always been here. Unborn, undying, and it's the end of all suffering, Nibbana. So I was saying in one group, one frame that's been helpful for me for the whole path, you could say it's about genuine authenticity, about finding the truth, your truth. You could also say the whole path is simply about secure attachment. 
We take refuge first thing. It's the first thing we do. Where it's safe, what's protective, what's worthy of safety and trust. Been talking a lot about trust in the groups, true, trust and confidence. That's a secure attachment. And what we suggest, it's this Dhamma. It's this thing that's timeless and immediate and very difficult to grasp and a little bit groundless, sometimes very scary. How do we find secure attachment in this that is actually not anything else that we're used to attaching to? It's not the right clothes. It's not the right body. It's not the right relationship. It's not the right job. It's not the right situation in life. It's none of those things. What if we find our secure attachment in something very different? Trusting the moment. Trusting your heart's responsiveness. John O'Donohue says, rather decide to call on your heart that it may grow clear and free to welcome home your emptiness, that it may cleanse you like the clearest air you could ever breathe. Allow your loneliness time to dissolve the shell of dross that had closed around you. Choose in the severe silence to hear the one true voice your rushed life fears. Cradle yourself like a child, learning to trust what emerges so that gradually you may come to know that deep in that black hole you will find the blue flower that holds the mystical light which will illuminate in you the glimmer of springtime. Deep in that black hole, that black space, you find a flower. This, to me, Kuan Yin, the many hands and eyes, is also represented by the Great Mother. The Great Mother, Prajna Paramita, who is right here. She's in the room. She's in the house. Prajna Paramita. It's interesting we have a statue of her because generally she's empty. She's the mother of all Buddhas, because it's from that place that all Buddhas are born. Empty, groundless, dark, womb. How is it to be held in that kind of care? Secure attachment to the mother of all Buddhas. That place from which all Buddhas are born. Let her hold you. Sometimes it can feel like just lying down on the earth, letting your body touch the ground. The earth as Prajnaparamita, the great wisdom. So Dhamma, Dhamma is the great wisdom. Dhamma is timeless. It's immediate. It's akaliko, beyond the bounds of time and space. Time is passing. It's going to be 2024 soon. Can you divide time? Can you grasp the now? What if you divided this moment into seconds and then milliseconds, right? Where is time? Where is yesterday? Space also doesn't exist. What's happening down in the community meditation center? We're not there. It's not happening, right? Is it within our sense spheres? No. We're dreaming ourselves into existence. We think time exists. What happened to you? What's the five-year-old you? Where is that? Where's that? Or the you that's 80? Where is the guacamole? Gone, 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 gone. This is why we are so afraid. It is terrifying. It's gone, gone. Where are you? It's gone. You're different. New, 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 new. That's more true than any kind of story you have about yourself and who you are and your age. Does awareness have an age? No. There is no age. There is no gender. The Dharma is very gender fluid, actually. Right? At a certain level, nothing is what we think it is. 
Mahabua, the Thai forest master, says, this vanishes, that vanishes, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. All that remains is simple awareness, utterly pure. Hmm. Okay, this next one is my favorite one, Ehipasiko. The Dhamma is inviting investigation, encouraging us to come and see. Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. The direct translation of Ehipasiko simply means come see. You got that image? Like for me, it was my auntie who took me to the ocean when I was little, and she'd be like, come see the tide pool. And in the tide pool is like anemones and starfish and all the hermit crabs. She's like, come and see. It's wondrous. It's wondrous in here. A simple come see. There's a beautiful sunset this evening. Did you feel the clouds saying, come and see the end of 2023? There's something wondrous happening here. Come see. I imagine all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who are like, come on. It's here. Find it. That feels very compassionate, that come and see. The Dhamma is come and see, come and see. It's more than you know. It's even deeper. See more. You don't know what you don't know. The Buddha uses this image of an ancient path through the forest. And this person wandering in the forest finds an ancient path and comes upon this great city. And that's the Buddha. He says, could all the villagers, he says, come, come, follow this ancient path. There is a beautiful city awaiting you. That's what's happening. We're like, okay, okay, walk the path, walk the path. There's a beautiful city awaiting. It's beautiful. Mm. The Dhamma is opanaiko. It's leading inwards to the source. What does that mean? I don't know what the source is. I mean, maybe Prajnaparamita. But this is also how the gender, it's gender fluid, the Dharma. It's queer. It's dismantling everything you know about yourself. It's subversive. We always look outwards for truth. We're trying to figure out what's true about that, what's true about this, what's happening here, right? We're always outwards, outwards, outwards. Openaiko, it's leading inward to the truth of you, to the source. We don't know what that is. The live wire of authenticity, we don't know. Has something to do with life and death, I think. And Zen, they chant so powerful. Listen well, everyone. Great is the problem of life and death. Now forever gone, gone. Awake, awake, each one, do not waste your life. The Dhamma is timeless, immediate, encouraging investigation, onward leading, leading us inward to the source, ready for discovery. It's beautiful. The Dhamma is beautiful. And we hear this word, Kalyana. Kalyana, we hear it more than 400 times in the suttas. And often it's translated as good. The Dhamma is good in the beginning. It's good in the middle. It's good in the end. It's good right in the middle of your doubt storm. It's good right in the middle of all that pain and confusion. It's good in the middle of you falling asleep. But Kalyana, what if we translated it as the Dhamma is beautiful in the beginning? It's beautiful in the middle. And it's beautiful in the end. Your suffering is beautiful. It's honorable. It's noble. Your willingness to be here is beautiful. There's dignity. There's honor.
So this path definitely is about standing under our dukkha, but it's also about opening to the beautiful. It's about trusting beauty, trusting that which is beautiful. And Dawn named it last night. We have to grow our capacity to open to joy and rapture and bliss and happiness and contentment and gladness. Our capacity to hold beauty equals our capacity to hold difficulty. Capacity to hold challenge grows our capacity to open to goodness. Mahakasapa, he was in mountain retreat. He said, strewn with garlands of the musk rose tree, these regions are so delightful, so lovely. Echoing the trumpeting of elephants, these rocky crags delight my heart. Glistening, they look like blue storm clouds with waters cool and streams so clear and covered all in ladybugs. These rocky crags delight my heart. The rain comes down on the lovely flats and the mountains frequented by seers, echoing the cries of peacocks. These rocky crags delight my heart. We have the cries of peacocks on this land. Maybe you've heard her. Tina the peacock is around. Can we say that about these hills? The rain, it delights my heart these trees. He's opening his heart to the beauty around him, to the truth, to nature, to Dhamma. What if this were the whole training in just learning to see with the eyes of beauty? Seeing our own beauty, seeing the beauty in others. Growing up, my mom was friends with a medicine woman, a shaman in the Navajo tradition. And she taught me this prayer. I remember very young in the shower, I would say this prayer. Today I will walk out. Today I will walk in beauty before me. I will walk in beauty behind me. I'll walk in beauty above me. I'll walk in beauty below me. Does this sound familiar? There's something very parallel. The Buddha taught this directions, radiating out beauty. And here we have this whole indigenous tradition training in beauty before me, beauty behind me, beauty above me, below. I do remember saying that in the shower every morning. In beauty all day long may I walk. I think it was maybe 10 years ago here in this hall, in this retreat on this night, on New Year's Eve. Yeah, 2013 maybe. Where our beloved Pascal Eau Claire, he said, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And his definition was that we are learning to care for our aching and complex hearts so that we can learn to care for this aching and complex world. And if you reflect, I mean, everyone had a different 2023, but haven't we been through it a little bit, you guys? Like, really? We could say this about 2022, 2021, and 2020. Like, look at what we've been through, the world, and what's happening now. Those 30 wars, so much divisiveness. So how do we learn to stabilize this heart in a world that's shaking? How do we learn to grow our capacity Perhaps it's growing our capacity to be with love, to be with beauty, to clear everything else out so that we understand the truth that's here, your capacity, your power, your resiliency. As we learn to let go, we learn that it's about love. The more we let go, 
the more room there is for love. Kalyanamitta, we've heard this, the beautiful friend, someone who helps us along the way, who perhaps mirrors back our inner beauty. So this sense of a good spiritual friend, of a beautiful friend in friendship, can we see how in that, again, we get this definition of the whole of the holy life, right? Spiritual friendship, connection. We have the ethical dimension of harmlessness. We have this deepest dimension of emotions, relationality, resonance. And we have this freedom from suffering that we see in our friends. We see them, their potential. We believe that to be our own truth, our own potential. And so in this spiritual friendship, this goodness, this beauty that we see in others, that we see inside, making the world our friend and being a friend to the world, Can we see how this is true? We're learning to care for our aching and complex hearts so that we can care for this world that's so aching and so complex. And what if it were about doing it together? About trusting each other to keep walking side by side. So I have this whole other part where 20 years ago, as a graduate student, I wrote my thesis, my nonfiction thesis about beauty. I went back. I read some of the stuff. It's all really smart and good. I was going to read it to you. But we'll save that. We'll save that for later. Maybe I'll do that later for you. There's some good things in there. But what I want to do now is just is end with a poem. I want to end with a poem. This is called Holding the Light. Gather up whatever is glittering in the gutter, whatever has tumbled in the waves or fallen in flames out of the sky. For it's not only our hearts that are broken, but the heart of the world as well. Stitch it back together. It all comes down to this. In our imperfect world, We are meant to repair and stitch together what beauty there is. Stitch it with compassion and wire. See how everything we've made gathers the light inside itself and overflows. A blessing. It all comes down to this. In our imperfect world, We're meant to repair and stitch together what beauty there is. Stitch it with compassion and wire. See how everything we have made gathers the light inside itself and overflows. A blessing. So let's just sit together quietly for a moment.
Thank you for your kind attention. I'm going to tell you about what's going to happen next. Okay. So stay in your bodies. You can go to bed if you want to. There's no obligation to stay up. So we're going to continue our schedule as usual through the nine o'clock sit. So we have some walking now. We're going to come back, sit together, maybe do some chanting from nine to nine thirty. At 9.30, there's a snack down in the dining hall. A little bit of a very quiet party. (laughs) We come back, we do a little bit more walking, a little bit more sitting. And at 10.30, 30, you're going to hear a bell. And we'll ring the bell a little bit, 10.20, right? 10 minutes ahead of time. And at 10.30, we'll all be coming back here. And this is when you want to bring your papers Bring your intentions and your letting go, all of this. Bring your papers back to the hall at 1030. And we'll be doing, we'll be participating in a whole ritual from 1030 all the way through the new year. We'll end around midnight. So just so you know, this is happening. Really up to you. If you need to sleep, please sleep. The ritual is going to be amazing. You can come for that if you want. And then people who are ringing the bell in the morning, 5.30 and 6, don't ring the bell. (laughs) Okay? So that if you want to sleep in, you can sleep in. Of course, if you want to come to the hall, are you still good to lead the practice, David? Okay. So we will have a practice leader at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. So if you want to come, come. But you won't hear any wake-up bells. So just to allay those of you who are like, should I stay up, should I not? To know there's a little bit of a wiggle room there in the morning for sleeping in if you want. So that's what's going to happen next in this immediate and timeless truth of the moment. Okay. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.